a lot of people, a lot of smart people too, surprisingly, like we're basing the future of blockchain games on a few just completely broken assumptions that games should make you money, that chasing high yields is wise, that ramping up scholars makes any sense whatsoever. Hi friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today is a special episode because we're going to be taking a look at what's happened in the games industry in the first half of 2022, looping in some predictions. And it's extra special because we're joined not one, but by two Navic co-founders, two out of two, by the way, um, Aaron Bush and Abhimanyu Kumar. Welcome. Thanks, Maria. Hey, guys. Okay, yeah, exactly. well, probably, was... probably like our first episode <laughs> together. In a uh, long time, at least. May- did we do the first episode ever of the Metacast together? I think maybe we did the first one ever, but now we're on like episode, yeah. I don't even know what episode number we're on at this point, like 100 or something. So maybe every 100 episodes we'll we'll get back together. Are we on episode what? 100? No way. No. Like, we're pretty close <laughs> well, to that, I think. Route- are you yeah. counting the Crypto Corner segment? Yeah, just like all the podcast episodes. Yeah, we're probably on like roundtable oh, number right. like 50, something like that. 50, right? okay. Oh, okay, 50, 56. 56, yeah. 56, yeah. Yeah. an annual occurrence. Yeah, so... Maybe we're, when we're, we hit the 100, we should like... Yeah, I mean, we should definitely know when we hit 100 <laughs> and then we'll do something. <laughs> That'll be a special episode, I'll, yeah. I'll let you all know. I I keep track of this. I'm the accountant of the episodes. Um, It's 4th of July because we're pre-recording, you know, holidays and summer. And we thought it was a good good time to to look back to what happened. But I wanted to say it's 4th of July because, Aaron, you live in the United States, right? I do. I don't think there's uh, too much to celebrate in the U.S. lately, to be honest. But it's still, uh, mm. you know, it's still a good excuse to, you know, hang out with family, have fun with friends, all of that. So, you know, still trying to have a good time. Yeah, our fireworks. Play some Apex Mobile. Yeah, I need to do that. That's true. <laughs> do you still are fireworks still a thing on Fourth of July? Oh yeah, it's like the. Yeah, definitely. All over the place. There's going to be a ton of fireworks. Did, did you get some? Is it legal? Should um, I be asking you this on live? In most places, it is not legal to just shoot off fireworks in the suburbs, <laughs> you know, things like that. But <laughs> some people definitely do. Um, but Some people that do not include Aaron, by the way. Yeah, that do not include me. Also, fireworks are expensive. I think fireworks are like, it's oh. one of those things that it's like one of my personal pet peeves that I'm never going to ever spend like a dollar on because you like the good fireworks that cost, you know, like hundreds of dollars. And then all you do is blow it up. You're literally lighting money on fire. You're literally <laughs> just blowing up money. And I, I cannot get behind that. So it's okay. Like, I even feel weird, you know, like, all right, you know, tax dollars go into just literally blowing things up in the sky. Like, I feel weird about that. And I get some people like it, you know, okay, but <laughs> never going to come out of my bank account to fund fireworks. So yeah. I, I, I don't like fireworks for more like the environmental reason. <laughs> I never thought about it in terms of, you know, like burning up money. Uh, but yeah, the environmental reason is like super important for me because I'm mean, coming from India. You know, we have this uh, one festival called Diwali, which is a festival of, festival of lights. 
and that's like a firework extravaganza but where basically like neighborhoods are competing with each other on who can like you know burn up more money the fastest <laughs> and uh, and yeah i mean basically at the end of the at the end of the you know festival delhi which is the capital is just covered with a cloud of uh, smoke and smog and wow. it's quite bad <clears throat> um oh, i thought you were going to say but, like it like um, hits birds or something but yeah, I guess smoke and smog. No, there are no birds anymore because the birds don't want to fly around in all the smog. So, you know, <laughs> it's, cle- it's, it's clear skies for the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, man. Well, happy so, 4th of July. Yeah. <laughs> wow, New Year's Eve will never be the same. Yeah. Oh, looking at this burning money. Yeah. Um, I used to like it when I was a kid. I did, I did like both some fireworks then, but then... Then I stopped. <laughs> yeah, I used to like it until I had a dog. And then mm. the dog wasn't same very here. happy. Yep, same here. So then I got unhappy. But it's still really nice, you know, mm-hmm. fireworks, very pretty. Once in a while. <laughs> and, you know, if you are not buying fireworks, there's something else that you can do with your saved money, and that's become a member of Navic Pro. <laughs> <laughs> what a transition. What a yeah. transition. What a transition. I know. <laughs> this is going now the worst. Re- re- reading, reading that pro analysis content is going to result in fireworks in your mind. <laughs> Gosh, that was so terrible. Um, <laughs> okay, let's quickly move on from this embarrassment. Um, Aaron, <laughs> What's the first big beat that you have for us today? Yeah, so um, let me pull up my notes real fast. So I think um, there there are plenty of pretty big trends and narratives that had, that have shifted gears over the first half of the year pretty heavily. So I think it's worth highlighting, um, you know, what those are and you know why we've seen so much evolution and change in such a short period of time. And um, you know, one obvious contender as a trend that's changed heavily. Uh, this year is M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So, um, you know, I think 2022 has technically broken records for games industry M&A because January was insane. That's when, you know, Microsoft announced its acquisition of Activision, which still might not go through it probably will. Uh, but that was about a $70 billion deal. That was also when um, Take-Two acquired or announced the acquisition of Zynga, and that was about like a $12 billion deal. And then, uh, I don't know if this was in January, but shortly after, you know, Bungie announces $3.6 billion acquisition of Bungie, um, et cetera. And, you know, since then, uh, we have not seen anything like that. And part of that has to do with, well, there are only so many Activision Blizzards and Zyngas that can be purchased. But um, really more than that, there's just been like a pretty... Uh, you know, real change in capital markets that are that just change the you know the logic of how these kinds of deals get thought through and made. And so, um, you know, capital is more expensive now. We're already seeing interest rates rise. So if companies need to take out debt to make deals, it's just more expensive for them to do that. Um, you know, a lot of big acquisitions, like we saw with even um, Take Two and Zynga, they're used um, with company stock. Um, and when prices in the stock market's doing well and prices are higher, um, it's usually more compelling for companies to leverage their shares at higher prices to acquire other companies, often at lower prices. But when lots of you know stock prices are down across the board, it's just 
it's less intriguing as a value proposition for companies to sell stock to buy other companies. And so there are a couple like really important levers right there that <laughs> that are less appealing than they were, you know, even six months ago. Um, and, you know, when you kind of pair that on with just more economic slowdowns or concerns or just recognizing that maybe the same level of growth that was forecasted maybe was too ambitious and therefore like companies need to cut back. Also, just cash in general is, um, you know, something that companies are not just tossing out as freely as they might once have. And so, um, you know, when it just comes to like the nature of like how capital works and what makes it compelling to use or not, it's just become less compelling over the, the past six months. Um, also, like there have just been, you know, ongoing structural changes in the market as well. So when it comes to something like mobile, um, you know, companies just have to be more careful buying into mobile, given a lot of the, you know, the UA and LTV destabilization that we've seen with, you know, privacy changes like IDFA. Um, and um, I think even when you kind of look beyond that, it's just, the, you know, the question of like, who is left to like make these big acquisitions that would actually want to at this point in time? And it's just harder to answer that question right now. And it doesn't mean that we won't see it, uh, but it'll probably be at different terms and it'll probably not be as crazy of size. And it might even be different types of buyers that are in the mix. So instead of, you know, just, uh, you know, random company out there looking to buy another company to grow, it could be, you know, more like, private equity and things like that now that um, companies need to cut back, their economics have changed, and there's just more challenges to think through. So so really, in general, just M&A has changed. And that in and of itself is, is you know, a symptom of like broader underlying changes. But it's been pretty crazy to see how we went from breaking records at such an extreme level to, you know, cutting back down and, you know, kind of changing the trajectory of how we should even think about M&A as an industry. Um, so I guess, um, those are my thoughts and I guess I'm curious, you know, as you think about the landscape, um, is there, I guess, I'm first of all, do you agree with me that, um, M&A should be cut back down probably from the highs that we saw? And if we are to see M&A over the second half of the year, where, where are we most likely to see it? Like where makes the most sense to see, companies continue to buy up other companies or not? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of like these huge M&A deals, we're probably, yeah, probably Q1 was the, you know, or yeah, Q1 was filled with the most fireworks. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I think going forward, at least M&A at that scale is probably not going to be happening for some time. So I agree with that. Um, I guess, the one one question I did have though is you know more in terms of like we wrote this article in Navit Pro about you know uh, the consolidator companies um, like uh, Stillfront and Embracer and basically connecting it back to this point that you just made about you know when um, yeah if your uh, if your uh, public market stock price is uh, price quite low then uh, using that as a lever to you know fund future M and A. Um, basically has become a weak lever. So <clears throat> for these companies, um, that's my like one one concern, like, okay, you know, what, what happens to the strategy of these companies where they now like really need to double down on the studios that they have acquired 
and the tech that they have built and the processes they have in place uh, to essentially now, you know, build games uh, in-house. So that whole uh, organic growth uh, aspect of things for these companies is now it's really going to like rear its ugly head. And, you know, it's going to become like really, really important for these companies, I would say. So, <clears throat> but yeah, I don't know, like, uh, how, how do you kind of like think about that aspect of things uh, with these consolidated companies? Yeah, well, I think growth by acquisition is always, there's always risk inherent in that model when you're growing just from however you allocate, uh, you know, capital, raise money, sell stock, things like that. And that's your source of growth more so than like internal reinvestment on like high like return on investment activities that generates organic growth. Um, and I think, you know, we see plenty of examples over time of companies that have been serial acquirers like outside of gaming too. And it works because they're just really smart with managing money. But also they're really smart in terms of the quality of the assets that they buy. And so when I... Um, and there, there are certain time periods where it makes more sense to like lean in and lean out or just change how you think about acquisition. The problem is like you need to have flexibility like built into your model so that if you press the brakes, it doesn't screw you over. And so when I look at some of these companies like Stillfront and Embracer, there really was like a positive feedback loop in play where um, they they would use stock to acquire companies to get you know short term burst of growth, which would then push their stock price up even more and they could sell even more stock and you know they're a larger company and therefore they can take on more debt. And there was this positive feedback cycle on the way up that led mm -hmm. that let them like accelerate growth by acquisition. But as with all things in markets, like it never like the market dynamics never stay the same. And so they're going to change. And so the problem with that model is that when the market changed, they weren't equipped to really deal with that change. And so um, now we see, you know, some of these companies that their their stock price has fallen. Now they um, can't use their stock as effectively to make deals. Now their growth, their acquisition driven growth is lower, which makes the growth expectations of the company lower, which makes the stock price and company value fall even more, which if they have lots of mm -hmm. debt and stuff already, um, it just makes the company more inflexible to um, using capital mm -hmm. to be more flexible. Like they can't, you know, take on a lot more debt. They can't necessarily sell more stock. So they're just a bit more stuck. And at that point, mm -hmm. it's like the main determinant is like, did you do a good job in buying the assets that you did in a way where that's going to contribute to the trajectory of your company's expansion? And I think with a lot, you know, if you kind of look back at a lot of the companies that still front and in Bracer and others like it um, bought, um, it hasn't necessarily led to the level of organic growth that they would have wanted. I think the idea of like just synergies between these studios is probably, it doesn't really exist all that much. Like there are probably little things here and there you can say like, oh, leverage this game engine to grow or leverage this brand in another studio to make another game and not have to pay a licensing fee or, you know, something like that. But or lo not, localizing different games for different yeah. markets where these studios are yeah. strong. Yeah. So I think there is a little bit to like organic growth that is there, but there's not like a huge like organic growth reinvestment engine that really exists to take these companies to the next level. And we've seen that through really weak organic growth over the past year. And that's not 
um, you know, the whole industry has been kind of struggling with organic growth. So it's not just them, but when your entire economic model hinges on like you have to make lots of deals. And if that goes away, the deals that you've made need to carry the company forward to new heights. That's a lot harder. And in, in a case like Stillfront, which is like very like mobile centric, um, that's been really hard. Something like Embracer maybe is a bit yeah. more interesting just from the sense of like, they're, they're not, they're not even just a games company anymore. And so they bought, you know, Asmodee, which, you know, is a big leader in board games. They bought, I think it was Dark Horse Comics, which just has a ton of IPs yeah. to work with. And some of those things, like you could make the case that organic growth could actually be more feasible than just throwing a bunch of studios together. Cause you can like, you can leverage talent connect it to like the board game industry and like actually innovate in some way and build something new that kind of pushes forward that industry meaningfully or take all of these new IPs that you now own and do something like unlock some value in them that couldn't have been unlocked before. Um, but I don't, I still don't know if that really moves the needle enough for these companies. So I think they're, yeah. they could be good businesses, but the assumptions that were made about their economic growth, growth by acquisition, economic models, it was just way too high. And as soon as that unravels, those assumptions and forecasts just plummet. And that's why we've seen these companies still front, probably most of all, just get hit so hard. So I think it's really interesting. Um, it's a fascinating model, but there's there's a lot to it that you need to be really careful about as you build it up as to not you know completely collapse on the way back down. Yeah. Doesn't... So the the business, the underlying business model, does it not have an expectation that eventually the growth by acquisition will plateau or slow down significantly? Because doing building a business model that requires good market conditions for years and years and years, like that's not how market cycles really work. Yeah, um, and I just I think a lot of people were forecasting probably incorrectly on how that would go across right. like the entire mm -hmm. stock market too. Like we've seen like a pretty huge reset and expectations like across the entire global stock market. Um, but yeah, <coughs> companies like this that definitely hit the most. Um, and what gets challenging too is like, I think it's like these companies don't want to admit it. And so in their like their commentary to investors in the market, they're not saying that they're going to do less deals or that growth by acquisition is, become, is going to become a smaller driver. They want to forecast higher growth and figure out how to continue to make that growth engine intact. But the challenge for these companies is you either have to do one or two or both things. One, at a larger size, you need to make more acquisitions to get the same amount of growth, You know, more smaller acquisitions. And then it's just, you're probably taking more of a shotgun approach and it's harder to get the same level of quality if you're making, you know, five times more the number of acquisitions that or you need to make larger acquisitions. And when you make larger deals, it's just more complicated <laughs> because you're putting you're betting more of the company, you're putting more of the company on the line to make sure it happens. But then the integration complexity and risk are just so much higher um, that if you screw anything up or it's not as quality as you thought, that in and of itself, one bad big deal can mess up the entire acquisition engine for many years as you kind of dig yourself out of that. Um, so I think I think for these companies looking forward, they will they'll continue to do M&A and such. Um, but I'm hoping they can um, like really rethink the types of companies and kind of the quality of 
companies that they buy so that they can really get that organic growth engine more in check. And that's easier said than done and it might not happen. Um, but that like that's the thing that would take these companies to the next level and make them really interesting. Not, you know, recession proof necessarily or anything like that, but you know, to stop the positive feedback loop that works so well on the way up from crashing on the way down. Yeah. I guess um yeah, and like these, the big acquisitions part is even harder when you know uh, the stock price is where it is right now. Um, just to kind of like look back at till front story a little bit, and you know, uh, back up a lot of what Aaron is saying over here. But I mean, still front, yeah, still front kind of started with you know these. I guess it was like four different companies coming together, and one of the key problems that they wanted to solve was um, essentially by providing. Um, yeah, basically scale advantages to smaller companies. Um, they end up providing more uh, stability um, to you know stock market investors to essentially invest in Stillfront, for example. What I mean by that is they would go ahead and like purchase companies that have long-standing games that you know are running on pretty old user bases, but are generating pretty decent amounts of money and. And then you add them all up, and at the end of the day, you have a pretty stable, you know, uh, revenue tra- trajectory that's predictable for the market, and uh, and and through live ops and you know better user acquisition techniques, etc., you're able to essentially gl- grow those revenues pretty predictably. Now, the problem, um, or at least the way I see it, is that the companies that they did end up purchasing that actually had these games were, um, I wouldn't say they were like you know tier A studios so they would be somewhere in between tier a to tier b studios and that and even though like they those studios have found success with the games that they have built in the past but to then create the next game which would be the source of organic growth you know i mean they're competing against like some pretty like pretty well equipped and you know well uh, staffed and very highly experienced tier a studios in the market and that's just it's just it's just very hard in you know in 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 mobile games as, as we all kind of know to just find that next hit. So so now Stillfund is left with basically a bunch of different studios who all have like they've proved themselves in the past, but now they have to like prove themselves again in in a even more competitive market. And but you know they are <laughs> I would say they're they're not all like tier A studios, which makes it which makes the whole organic growth. Uh, thing and basically finding the next you know hit game even harder on the but that that's like still front specifically on the flip side you have embracer which um yeah i mean it's gone they went like super crazy with their acquisitions right i mean not just like pc console studios but they also like starting to get into mobile a little bit and they have the comic book stuff and the board game stuff um but embracer also has um something like, you know, 250 different projects uh, in the pipeline and whatnot. And basically the number of the shots on Google that they have to find that lightning in the bottle, you know, again, the same way that they probably did with uh, Valheim. Uh, I mean, that at least they have like more shots on Google. I don't think, um, I'm, I actually haven't like checked uh, Stillfront's latest uh, presentation, but I don't think they have even those many attempts, you know, uh, to kind of find that next big hit. So maybe Embracer is at, is that a better place for finding that <laughs> organic growth uh, internally through those uh, multiple through those 250 shots on goal? But but yeah, 
I mean, at the end of the day, the fundamental issues between these companies uh, still remains the same. Mm-hmm. And just to, to wrap think- up this topic quickly before we move on to the next one, if I had to guess, um, you know, if we see large M&A over the next six months or so, it's probably not, it's not going to come from, you know, the big game publishers or even just like the big game platforms like um, Xbox, Sony, Nintendo. Nintendo doesn't really acquire. Um, Sony, well, I mean, it's, it has like its acquisition strategy to kind of do like tuck in studios and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, Xbox has its hands full with um, Activision. Um, so I would guess that if we were to see larger deals, it would probably be from like the other like big entertainment and tech companies that are a bit more cash rich. These are like lower probability of occurring, but these are like the companies of scale that probably would have want to have something to do um, with gaming at a larger level. So like it's probably not going to happen, but like a Disney coming in and deciding it wants to remake you know, gaming is a larger pillar of its business with, you know, its new CEO, you know, trying to, you know, stake his legacy or, you know, Amazon, like who we know wants to build out its gaming ecosystem, having a ton of capital and basically being able to buy like most anything and it barely moved the needle for how big that company is. So those are the kinds of places where I would expect in this stage where the bigger deals could come, we could see more private equity pop in and things like that as some companies struggle and need to cut back on spending and all of that, which isn't super exciting. Um, I don't know if that's super healthy for the industry, but um, we could see maybe a bit more of that occur. But anyways, it's yeah, just been wild to see how quickly the gears have shifted and sentiment has changed around M&A. Yeah, maybe one last quick comment. So like to go back to your question about, you know, where where the next um, M&A could come from, there's obviously like what you said about, you know, the bigger media companies trying to like make really big gaming company purchases um some other places which um i'm curious to get your guys's thoughts also but one other place could be all these companies that went public um during the covid drives so you know um like platica or iron source and basically they were riding that wave so hard uh that they also like ended up going public but now they're really not in a healthy spot um and also all these companies that like went, went uh, like spacked, <laughs> if that's the way to say it, but the companies that spacked, like uh, Nexters, I mean, I, I don't even I, I have to like check where, uh, like what's up with Nexters, but you know, um, I mean, that company was built on one game and it went for the SPAC deal. And I mean, now, now I don't know what, what's happening to it. I feel like those com- there could be like some consolidation happening or like some buying up happening of those companies. The oh, other- Sorry, Playtica got, um, I don't know if it's a majority stake, but a big stake in the company was acquired by Joffer, Joffer Capital, which is like a tech investment company. Yeah. Um, yeah, Joffrey Capital, that was the news. Um, so it was curious, like, um, I was also listening to uh, Aaron's uh, interview with uh, Eric Kress, and uh, Kress said that, you know, that's, uh, it's fake news, that uh, that piece of, <laughs> it, it didn't really, like, also pick up in uh, in various other websites, so maybe it is. Um, mm. But um, but anyway, um, the, the, other, the other area I felt that there could be some M&A happening is because of, you know, um, so because of, like, uh, because of IDFA and basically uh, more inefficient UA kind of uh, taking over the market, uh, there are still a lot of private studios 
that are focused on you know genres that heavily depend on targeted UA that are probably not seeing the efficiency that they can over there, and those two could be could still be like good targets at this point, uh, especially for bigger companies that have the cash balance, you know, to kind of make those deals. Um, so at least yeah, those would. I, I still feel like Playrix is up for grabs, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, what, what what do you guys think uh, about those two areas of more M and A? Yeah, I mean, I think it could happen. I don't think it would happen at great terms for those companies. Those are companies that uh, some of them they probably went public when they shouldn't have um, at prices that they could only get away with, you know, at the top of mm-hmm. an economic and market cycle. And so having mm-hmm. to reset, you know, either they're just going to get crushed and many of them have already been crushed in public markets, which just means like, do you want to continue going down this path and get just roasted every quarter as a public company? Or do you want to find an out um, and just kind of regroup while private? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it is possible that that happens um, quite a bit um, and it won't be, you know, really worth celebrating when it does but it yeah it'll be more of like a cleanup cleanup operations reorient and streamline all of those kinds of things but yeah feasible yeah. nothing industry moving but yeah i guess yeah. a sign of the times well this this ties nicely into the second the second big beat that that you brought yeah um so I need to figure out how to how to focus this topic. But basically, like, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the economic cycle has turned a bit more recessionary, or it looks like it's probably heading in that direction. Um, the market itself is obviously well off of its highs. And, you know, it's had different impacts on different companies, a lot of the more like growth oriented companies that had really high expectations, they've been hit the most while others that are, you know, stronger, more predictable cash flow generating businesses. They've still taken a price cut, but they're not taking nearly as much of a, a beating as just where expectations were really high with other companies. But um, it's it's also been striking kind of similar to how I said in M&A, how it went from just like really heavy M&A to just a complete like change in sentiment that's had ripple effects in M&A. I think we we're also seeing that same thing just play out like within companies as they think about their own spending, as they think about their own hiring, as they think about their own forecasting um, to various extents. And this creates a lot of ripple effects. And it's it's hard to overgeneralize this, but I guess to just kind of hit on some things at you know, a high level, obviously many investors have been crushed. Um, it started in the public markets, but I guarantee you it's trickling into private markets now too, since you know the price of private companies is at least partially dictated by whatever exit opportunities they have, which is more dictated by public prices. Um, we've seen the IPO markets slow for obvious reasons. Uh, SPACs are basically dead. Um, so we're not really seeing any more of those happen right now. Um, VC investment is slowing despite you know record capital being on the sidelines. Um, part of that is just you know VCs are you know, they're just trying to figure out like what prices make sense to have deals on, especially in later stages, seed stage, where companies are just getting started. That's being affected less, but more at the growth stages, it's being affected a bit more, where the prices really are more dependent on public comps and things like that. 
Um, and in general, like the market is pricing companies less just based on their ability to grow, uh, which a lot of those growth assumptions have anyways been put into to check, but also just higher emphasis on generating profits. Um, and so when you, it's sort of a one-two punch of when growth expectations, you know, probably get pulled back a little bit while the emphasis on profits gets higher, it leads to, it leads to layoffs. And we've seen quite a bit of those trickle in over the past month as companies like Unity and AppLovin, et cetera, um, announce layoffs, which you hate to see. Um, um, but, you know, still will probably, that trend will still probably continue for a while in certain places. Um, you know, it leads to companies like we discussed in the last, or maybe it was two roundtables ago, um, uh, where we discussed, you know, how companies, even big companies with tons of cash like Meta, you know, they're cutting back on lots of different projects. And, you know, companies are just getting more focused on what they know can work and when. Um, and, you know, as we said, it could lead to more private equity getting involved. Um, I, really, I think the strongest companies are probably still going to get hit the least by, you know, the need for layoffs, need for refocusing, things like that. And it really, it's just these smaller companies, um, some of them who have IPO'd over the past couple of years or so, the, you know, the Robloxes, the Unities, those kinds of companies, um, they're the ones who are, you know, dealing with, you know, a lot of the economic and market changes, dynamics, um, you know, growth forecast changes, and, you know, having to rethink how they prioritize, you know, the growth in their own businesses and such. Um, so again, been really interesting to see how quickly sentiment has shifted across um, not just like the market and how deals get done, but how companies themselves are prioritizing, you know, how they run their own businesses and have to think about financing and all of that kind of thing. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that it's a big topic. Um, but I wanted to, you know, throw out there and just see, you know, based on what Maria and Manu, what you both see out there, um, are there areas that you think are like, you do see getting, um, hit harder more than most, um, or, you know, you think could continue to like get hit hard, in the next quarter or so, or even the opposite. And, you know, areas you still feel pretty strongly about that you just don't have concerns about. Curious to hear what you think. Yeah, at least on my side, um, and this probably like uh, funnels into one of the topics I want to talk about, um, which is, you know, the basically the fall of <laughs> the of various blockchain games or, uh, or better called Ponzinomic games. Um, but yeah, that's that's like one clear area where you know things have really, really fallen off of uh, of a cliff. Um, basically, all the different game tokens are down. You know, about eighty to ninety percent <laughs> each. Uh, it's absolutely crazy if you check out like some of these, um, you know, DAP Radar or L two Y dot com. Um, I mean, everything is just basically that there there was a spike in mid twenty twenty one. And, you know, everyone was like enjoying that spike and all the graphs just kind of look the same. Right now, it's either they're back to their uh, early 2021 levels or uh, or even lower than that. Um, and some of the key, uh, I, I just to, like give some examples, but, you know, like Stepin's uh, GMP coin, that's like down 80%. Axie, 
Infinity with its AXS coin is down uh, 91%. And this is all compared to like their all-time highs. Um, Krabada's uh, Krak coin is down 99%. Uh, Pegaxi, which was basically uh, Axie Infinity, but with u- u- mech unicorns, <laughs> uh, is down another uh, 98%. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's like a complete bloodbath. Um, key drivers, at least in my mind, of course, like there's just like the overall crypto market downturn that's affecting a lot of this. But at the end of the day, yeah, all of these games, the way that they were built, um, uh, yeah, they just essentially relied a lot on, you know, new players kind of coming in and bringing new capital into the system that can be redistributed to everyone else, uh, basically promising to everyone else that there can be like, you know, financial gain, gains if you engage in this product. But there in... And, and therefore, like a lot of hype-driven value and things like that. But therein kind of lies the inherent problem with all of these games, which was they are just not inherently fun. And therefore, there is no um, there is no incentive for some of these players to, you know, engage with uh, them long-term. But it also shows that how much of the player base, uh, or at least in my eyes, it kind of shows how much of the player base uh, was actually driven by a bunch of speculators and or people who were just in it to kind of get the financial gains, which just comes back to the point of, you know, how important it is to actually build a fun product first. On top of that, I also feel um, at least like the first wave of these crypto games was also built by a lot of teams, which I would classify as maybe more on the inexperienced side when it comes to like building games more like crypto heavy teams who understood like more of the crypto side of the equation, but not really the game side of the equation too well. Um, Anyway, all of that has kind of like culminated into what we're basically the complete annihilation of, you know, the blockchain gaming market uh, quite uh, recently. Um, But yeah, the big question then remains, you know, uh, or what everyone is kind of asking is you know is this the end of blockchain gaming but uh i would say i i don't think so and i definitely hope not um at least in my mind what what has happened in this first wave is or probably the biggest thing uh, that's happened in my mind is more people from the traditional games industry have been uh, convinced that there is something here so there is something to explore over here and I think a lot of games industry people also think we can probably do it better <laughs> than how it was done. <laughs> so that that big talent migration, it's probably it started, it's definitely started and it'll continue to happen over time. Now when the talent migration happens, these are people basically a lot of like free to play game designers and definitely from you know more traditional PC console side of things. I mean, the free-to-play game designers definitely know how to, like, build economies. The only difference, and probably a big difference, is they were mostly, like, building closed economies versus, you know, now wanting to build an open economy, which is a pretty different um, uh, undertaking. But still, at the end of the day, versus, like, the teams that uh, were building the first wave of games, this is definitely a way more experienced talent pool that's going to be building the second wave of games. And... And that's why I kind of feel that, um, yeah, for blockchain gaming, it's still not over. Uh, and there's 
the the best is yet to come is what i would say mm-hmm. uh, for it because the second wave of crypto games is is on the horizon built by teams that know more what they're doing you know than uh, some of the teams in the past and and yeah i'm kind of, i'm still like excited to see you know uh, what those games are looking like i i i agree that it's not it's not dead but man you don't call us traditional games it's so sad we're not traditional <laughs> Makes you feel so old. Oh man! <laughs> oh man! Um, I mean, as, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm calling myself old. <laughs> as as painful as it is, the crypto winter, as it's been coined, I, I think it, it's one of the best things that could have happened to the space because it will it will force builders to build great games and not focus on ponzonomics. Uh, and if it's not, it can't even happen. So. You, you'll have to pay your attention to developing a fun game. My prediction is that over the next couple of years, the Web3, true ownership, permissionless, custodial, like all of these keywords, I think they'll die down, at least in the general in the general communication scheme. And I believe we're going to go back to, okay, what kind of game do we want to design? What audiences out there? What economy? What fun? What features do we need to, to build the vision that we have for this game and prototype ideas and validate? And I think you won't be designing a game to be Web3. You won't be designing a game because you want true ownership because like the, the mass audience, do they really care about true ownership? What does true ownership mean? Do you... But if you say, I would, oh, I would, if you... I would argue, I would argue, yes. Like of all the terms that you said, the ownership one is probably the one I would argue will actually continue. But is but... it true ownership, or is it you can cash out if you stop playing, or if you achieve something great, you can sell it and get some money for for what you've invested in? Because like ownership has so many satellite meanings around it, and if you, I think if we start talking about more, there, these are just game design decisions at the end of the day. And depending on your game design, you're going to need different tech in order to achieve it. And I think blockchain will become one of these technologies and we'll see publishing platforms bridging this gap of what you can plug in and play and <clears throat> so that studios don't have to be developing, I don't know, like account systems that link with wallets or yeah. um, how do you withdraw and all, how do you connect your wallet? Like eventually all of these things will just be refined and yeah, games yeah I agree game with developer. that. I, yeah. yeah, I think like all those, you know, um, basically all the problems that are being focused on right now with like probably the topmost one is Oh, it's such a headache to like connect my wallet to the game. I mean, all of those stuff, all of those things will go into the background. But um, and I actually, personally, I don't even like calling it blockchain gaming to be honest, because the the blockchain part is really the tech that's enabling mm-hmm. something bigger. And for me, that bigger thing is the the ownership aspect of this, because that's not really like existed in the games industry before, and. In, for for this model to actually like you know um, this is more like getting into my thesis for you know blockchain gaming, uh, but uh, for that model to actually have legs really long term for the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, for it's really more about like unlocking this new value vector of ownership for players, which is not which is not like been there before. Now what that means to your point, it could actually mean many different things. For some players, it could mean like you know 
flipping assets for some players it could mean like actual ownership which um results in i don't know if interoperability ever ends up happening in uh, between games where they are able to like transfer their assets between games i mean people at the end of the day also like play games for like 5 years and then they get bored but you know after you've invested like 2000 3000 5000 usd into that one game account you want to like do something with it right or or i don't know give it give it to your little brother so that he can continue or something you know um so i mean i feel like the definition of ownership could be actually pretty wide ranging and not just narrowly focused on you know making a profit off of it but at the end of the day that's really the new thing that's coming to the table or not coming to the table but that's really the new thing that you know this first wave of crypto gaming or blockchain gaming has probably shown to the rest of the industry that okay the gaming population is actually or actually values virtual assets and therefore ownership could be a thing that you know like we build a business on <laughs> or we actually sell so um but then yeah. it's well uh, you you don't You, you don't sell keywords to a mass a mass audience and I, that's why i think that's going to be the next step and that this crypto winter will take us there faster mm. you're going to start selling game game design loops and and features that you have nowadays like match 3 4x whatever it is and it'll it'll just become a new kind of game that you develop and players like like i don't think the grand majority of of an audience will play just because it's web3 or just because you have ownership it'll well, be I, by, I could, it'll be I, by the consequences rather than the key words that we tell yeah, them yeah i mean i could i could see a world where you know um the a same one player is shown uh one mmo a free to play mmo rpg and an ownership enabled mmo rpg and he doesn't know which is which but maybe the question that he asks is also oh, do i own my assets here or not <laughs> you know like it maybe not selling keywords but that feature could definitely exist where it just becomes important that okay if i'm going to be spending money on this game yeah will i actually like end up are they really mine or not you know i could yeah. see that kind of thinking like permeate the broader market for sure definitely and i think it already exists in that sub market that's mm. not with the terms and conditions of games if you're investing 100 hours in making a super awesome character that's extremely powerful mm. because you did all the right things mm. can i sell it can i pass it on to someone else um mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's not that i guess I, i think we'll definitely see there's obviously something there it'll play out in a million different ways as tons of different developers continue to try things out and learn and improve i i do just want to like double underline how much stupidity we've seen <laughs> over the past year though um and it is worth being super critical of just what we've seen play out in blockchain games so far so you know I, like a main thing to say is that like obviously the bear market is part of what has driven the declines but that would have happened anyways it only made it go faster than it would have mm. um and you know in my view like we are at like a pretty important transition point in the era of blockchain games i do think the first era was probably driven more by like crypto kitties which flamed out because ethereum wasn't scalable now you know the most recent era which was driven by axie infinity it was made possible because blockchains became more scalable but its achilles heel was the economic model that you know just everyone copied and jumped into and you know this past bull cycle 
was, you know, it was mostly fluff. It was built more on, you know, false economic beliefs than anything fundamental at all. And so, for example, the only reason guilds exist and therefore a lot of the emerging infrastructure around them exist is because one, Axie used a breeding mechanic for Axies that made barriers to entry high. Barriers to entry don't always have to be high because you don't have to always use that breeding mechanic. Two, the Ponzi-nomics, um, you know, made the point of the game financial earnings instead of fun, which we've talked about. And then a ton of people just copied these mechanics and built a ton of different things, a ton of different people piled in. And so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of smart people too, surprisingly, like we're basing the future of blockchain games on a few just completely broken assumptions that games should make you money, that chasing high yields is wise, that ramping up scholars makes any sense whatsoever. And, you know, anyone with an understanding of just like basic economics will tell you that games where people that, you know, where people are there to make money defies any laws of economics and math. High yields for products like this have no chance of being sustainable. And, you know, the entire, therefore, the entire premise of why most guilds were even built and why scholars ever made any sense whatsoever, it just makes less and less sense. And it was turbocharged, you know. Because, you know, similar to what I said, like the positive feedback loop of like the growth by acquisition model with traditional companies, like this is just another positive feedback loop based on like greed and a lack of like fundamental thinking. Um, But yeah, it just got so wild, right? Like people were talking about games solving basic universal income or universal basic income. And, you know, the Axie documentary, like people like ran with that and believed that there was like something of substance there. And yeah, like it's just like all of these beliefs, they just need a huge reset Um, and not just of prices, but of priorities. Right. Um, And so, you know, the next era of blockchain games, which hopefully, you know, starts now, um, you know, it should use a lot of the same tenets, hopefully some semblance of player owned economies, you know, unlocking composability in new ways, leveraging like, you know, we looked at Dark Forest recently, I think Lars talked about it on the podcast, you know, they unlocked, you know, zero knowledge proofs, like interesting, like privacy technologies to do something new that hadn't been done before completely on chain. Um, like that is the direction things obviously have to go. So I think the next six months, like Ponzi-nomics, like it's still going to have a fallout. There's still like people putting a ton of money into projects. There are so there are more guilds than ever that are still chasing the scholar model, even though it makes like generally no sense. Like maybe in a few cases, it makes like barely sense. If you kind of think about it more like traditional esports. but I think, you know, guilds will become more like VCs and hedge funds. The act of like having some type of scholar operation is probably going to get like removed from a bunch of guilds um, just because managing money and managing scholars, like they butt heads a lot when you think about it. Um, and yeah, I really hope the next six to 12 months, you know, teams just like completely reset on priorities, as you've all been saying, hopefully the next era is one of fun. If the first era was just based on like, you know, nothing could really happen because there was no scalability, but people realized that like, oh, we can own things. And the second one was based on scalability, but on wrong models. Hopefully the next one can be scalability on right models that actually look like games and we can actually get like past this bottom of the hype cycle up towards whatever the new highs Mm -hmm. are going to be um but man when you look back it's wild (laughs) all the things that people believed so hopefully we can move move past that 
real fast and move on to fundamental thinking. I think that's innovation, though. When something new and disruption disruptive appears, no, I, I think if you stupid. just look back at other big, uh, well, because there's innovation. When something, no, but when something, I, there's there's patterns. But when innovation and technology gets start interpreted as like innovation and finance, like that's like that's when all the red flags should go off because the fundamental beliefs people were turning some technology into some like economic model that made no sense. That is not innovation. Those things were solved hundreds of years ago. And so it's more that, yeah, it was just like investment in the wrong areas just because something was possible for the first time. I don't think that's innovation. I think that's taking a big step backwards before you take a step forwards, even though it brings a lot of people, brings a lot of capital, starts bringing a lot of talent, like that's all good. But if it's all being built for the wrong reasons, I'd, I'm not so sure that it's, I wouldn't classify that as innovation if it's not actually something that's going to stick. I see your point. I really see your point. I don't fully agree with it. I think there's a because, mix. I'll give, I'll give that because, yeah, yeah. Because the, the origin of blockchain was originally as a financial product from what I understand it. At least the first time I got in contact with it was, you know, maybe five years ago when I worked in fintech. But should and it be so games though? Whoever... Sorry, but wait, wait. I think this all will make sense because the builders who brought that innovation into games, that's the first application where it came from. And so you have that financial mindset. I'm not surprised that we applied the principles that existed within already like crypto markets and those, sorry for the term, I think they're called shit coins where you just pump and dump. Um, and you're if, if you come from that mindset and that knowledgeable I don't know, like area, you bring that into games. And that's why it was the first the first iteration of its usage. And you have like dreamers who think that it's going to be the next and only thing and it's going to change the world. And then you have big skeptics who believe that it will not mean anything. And it's just a Ponzi scheme that is bad for humanity. And, you know, we look at AI. AI, kind of similar, but it comes from more of a, a scientific data background and so it went to we're going to create these machines uh, with ai and they're going to be amazing and then you have the skeptics which are oh ai is going to take over our jobs and we're not going to have anything to do and then time progresses and people just start converging into the middle and you start losing the noise of the predominant noise of these two polar opposites and you you converge into yeah more of that that middle ground and I think Actually, we'll also see that in crypto, crypto gaming. Yeah, I, the, the way I interpreted the, your innovation point was more um, asking ourselves the question whether crypto or blockchain gaming had to fall in these holes for us to reach uh, mm -hmm. an evolved way of thinking, um, you know, for of, of like basically to realize the, the future that uh, or the um, to realize the what's the word the ideal future uh, of these games and player-owned economies, uh, the question could be asked a hypothetical one that did we actually have to go through the, this first wave? Because I mean, it is undeniable the amount the entire industry, including us, have learned about how to build uh, like what what works and what doesn't work, you know, with these games. Uh, in hindsight, of course, you know like you know everyone can kind of point out and say that okay this this was shit and this doesn't make sense and you know uh, things like that but i mean yeah when you're when you're um yeah when you're building then you know you i mean 
it's basically everyone is just standing on the shoulders of each other and like trying to reach the next future. So um, at least that that's how I interpreted your um, um, innovation point. Uh, yeah. 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 Sorry for cutting you off, Maria. I, I guess... Um, it's okay. It was, it was a good discussion. Yeah, I think I think the hype cycle you see it across all technologies. Um, you know, AI, whatever. Like it's just always always there. Um, but you know, with crypto, it gets turbocharged because it's financial, and so like there's money on the line. And so I do think like technically the answer is yes to answer your question, money. Like, could we have gone through this cycle without having to make these pitfalls? Like the answer is yes, we absolutely could have. But is it realistic? The answer is probably no, because human mm. greed and yeah. psychology, like it, it's like the backbone of like every financial bubble ever. And this was a financial bubble. Mm. Um, and I do think like, you know, we actually like as Novik, we did a pretty good job, you know, catching on to just some of the BS early, like, you know, without knowing all the answers, you can at least point out things that are major red flags, like it defies common sense that everybody who plays a game can just make a lot of money. Like how, where does the money come from? Or that it solves universal basic income. Like, come on, no way. Um, but I, but I, but I do think like there still is innovation here. I mean, I forgot the main point I was going to say, but, um, <laughs> man, maybe it'll come back to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe you want to plug Navic Pro again. <laughs> yeah. was... Brain fireworks. Uh, I was just saying, like, I was, yeah, I, I, it's just something I've been, like, really triggered about lately because we've gone through this. Like, there's no excuse for people to not have these lessons by now. Like, we know Ponzi-nomics are a thing. We know they're unsustainable. It's been pointed out so many I, times across the internet that, like, these types of models they're going to fall apart on you. And if you're a guild or whatever, like if you play with fire long enough, you will get burnt. And so just following like people on Twitter and stuff, I still see guilds like they're still involved in, you know, like Axie Infinity and like projects that they're just trying to like milk these games for money. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like you're focusing on all the wrong <laughs> things right now. Like you have to, like if you want to survive, you have to reorient. If you like keep yeah. on doing what worked before, but clearly doesn't work now, like you're not going to get anywhere. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I've just been been pretty worked up about like, man, like people just <laughs> need to freaking pay attention and learn. Like, if you're if you're still investing in Ponzi-nomics, like you shouldn't be managing anybody's money, like whatsoever. Yeah. Like, just stop. Yeah. So, anyways, sorry, I was, <laughs> I was getting worked up because of all that. Didn't mean to cut you off. I, I anything, think I think this one, this is, I think this this is officially like Aaron's first rant on the podcast. Ah, congrats, so, Aaron! Okay. Fireworks! Well, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> but yeah, I totally yeah. agree, man. Like that, like people not, you know, I I think I mentioned it on a previous podcast also. Um, I didn't have like, you know, this much of a rant about it, but just getting again triggered by the fact that people are just not, you know, learning uh, from hindsight or just like looking back at things and, you know, building something different based on learnings from uh, previous projects or um, or how the market is actually moving and trying to understand like why things are happening. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely a point that kind of irritates me too. I have the same... Uh, you know, impressions when I'm like lurking on Twitter and looking at like different people's tweets. 
but yeah. um, which all goes to say, yeah, the bottom, if you guys, uh, the bottom is an N. Like the bottom is not N because there's still people out here, like being stupid, <laughs> and so like that. But like, it's never. Yeah, it's never going away. It it's just humanity. If there's a way to make fast money, people will try to do it. And you still have pyramid schemes. You still have Ponzinomics happening outside of games. If as long as it exists and it's possible. There will be someone trying it. So I don't think we'll ever see it completely eradicated. Yeah. We might just see consumers becoming mm, less risk averse, making better choices. I just, I want to see the scales tip because there always will be, unless like regulation hits a lot harder, which is very, very possible, if not probable that it will. And a lot of these assets are going to get start treated like securities, like a stock or something like that. Um, But yeah, I just want to see the skills tip. These kinds of things will always be here. And even with like normal games, like even if a team gives it its best shot, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will work or that the economy mm-hmm. will sustain itself if people don't stick around. Like all games go through some type of life cycle. And so that's inevitable. But yeah, I just, yeah, that tilt towards fun, fun games, it could not happen sooner. And I just, man, like, yeah, props to everybody who's building out there. I'm waiting. God, please hurry up. We all need you. We, we all need you to come out now. I I think you need to do a Twitter cleanup. I did one this weekend where uh, I started following way too many people in groups because I wanted to learn more about crypto gaming. And now I'm cutting back because I'm smarter mm. about things. And I'm cutting back whose content I read. Mm. Because not all content on Twitter is great or truthful or that you should actually take away as a learning. So maybe Aaron, <laughs> do a little Twitter spring cleaning. We're going to go a little bit over, but I wanted to talk about the big beat that I brought today. So it's really, really important. And my prediction is that we're going to start seeing uh, more studios being founded by founders who are more diverse. And the reason for that is if we, if we look at what happened this year and and in 2021 is that we've already started seeing some leading indicators i believe that this is going to pick up pace so for example we're seeing more promotions uh, of diverse professionals into leadership positions and then naturally the next step up is to go and co-found or found your own company Um, the diversity of thought is becoming critical to address the market and i think game companies that don't start building in diversity in their leadership will start to struggle. If you look at the mobile game audience, over 50% now are female gamers. And you need to have a team that, that understand the diversity, the diversity of thought and needs. And I think there's just growing dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I think that will bring diverse founders together to go and develop their own companies. Um, so for example, some of the, yeah, some of the examples that we have, Trail Mix, extremely successful game, diverse mm-hmm. founders, Unseen Studio, which I'm still super hyped about, founded by Kumi Nakamura in Tokyo. What, what, what are they doing, by the way, that, that studio? Unseen? Yeah. Not sure yet. I'm still hyped about the trailer, but oh, it's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I have to look into it further. I did a quick search, but I didn't see any more details. They're mm-hmm. probably still a bit in stealth mode. Uh, mm. Glow Up Games, uh, Lumi Interactive, fine. There's just some examples out there, and I think we're going to see more. And hopefully, we'll also start seeing more diversity in venture capital because I think we need that in order to accelerate this prediction 
because we need to start betting on founders that don't only have a long trail of big brand companies on their CV. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but we need to give more opportunities to founders that can deliver like professional outcome results and not expect founders to have been, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years in the industry with some big, big names um, to support the, the reliability of them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all super important. Um, and I hope we are seeing signs that there is progress um, with, you know, you gave a lot of examples of more diverse founders um, and, you know, looking at, you know, you hate to see it, but even just like what we've seen in like Activision Blizzard, where, you know, there was a whole lot of problems that came to the surface and it caused, you know, a lot of change. I think, you know, seeing seeing more big companies kind of clean up their act will be, you know, a good, um, it's a good first step for others to kind of follow, you know, best practices that form at bigger companies and such. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've said before that like, it's, I think it's really important to have diversity and every layer of the stack, you know, um, meaning that like, even like diversity and inclusion is to some degree self-reinforcing. If you have it across teams and across leadership levels, like in game design, you need to design for diverse audiences. So it's good to have diverse people with diverse mindsets and marketing you're selling to diverse audiences. So it's good to have diverse, you know, diverse, you know, people working on that with diverse mindsets and the C-suite you're leading for diverse employees. So you need like good diversity and inclusion there. And yeah, as you said, Maria, like investors, like that's like a huge backbone of determining who gets a leg up and building the future of games. And it's just important to have, um, you know, that mentality there too. And, you know, if you can kind of solve for it at every layer of the stack, it should move more in the right direction. And sometimes it's maybe easier said than done, but it still is worth doing and it's worth measuring for and making it, you know, more of a, more of a priority. So I think it is super important. And as I've, I think I've also said this before, maybe a few months ago, but I really like the dibs like mentality, which is diversity, inclusion, belonging, success, which basically means that like diversity doesn't matter if people don't feel like they're included. Inclusion doesn't uh, matter if they don't feel like they belong and belonging doesn't matter if it doesn't actually lead to success. And so as you measure and, you know, try to solve across everything for more diversity and inclusion, you really have to measure it based on the success that diverse people can see. Otherwise, you know, maybe you've made some progress, but it's not the level of progress that really should be accepted. And obviously, like even at Novik, we have a ton of work to do. And, you know, we struggle sometimes on it, but it's, you know, important and we want to measure ourselves based on it. Um, and I hope a ton of other companies are thinking the same way. Yeah, and I think as we start seeing some of these companies, for example, Trail Mix, and um, there'll be many more examples to come, just become extremely successful. That will also inspire you see yourself and you can think, oh, you know, maybe I can do it too. I, maybe I can take the step. But, you know, I, when I was preparing for this topic, I scrolled through a lot of VC firms and just, just looking at who they have as investors. Mm -hmm. I just get intimidated. I don't know. Like, I just don't believe when I see... Who are the investors? Like they're great people. I know some investors, they're amazing. It's just like that that mental block 
just because of society and what you experience in your day-to-day life if you don't see yourself reflected you just get that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. gut instinct of oh can i maybe uh, so we'll, yeah, I think there's we'll see. I think there's a big opportunity for another. I mean, I don't know if we need yet another venture firm necessarily. There's a lot of money flowing around in games, but um, for you know, it seemed to like specialize more in supporting you know diversity and such, and you know, making sure that a lot of people who might not feel as comfortable having you know seats at the table elsewhere or don't get listened to as well, like they have more of like a first stop where they can they can go to and, you know, they're always heard, listened to, people understand them better, et cetera. I think there's something to Mm. unlock there. That would be really interesting. And ideally it takes place across all venture companies, but if it's slow to do that, then having a more specialized team or something, it might just be good to have. I feel, yeah. I feel we're really at probably like the start of a big, like snowball effect happening for, you know, more and more diversity over the next you know, 25 years. Um, I mean, gaming traditionally, what it, gaming is still a pretty young industry and it has been uh, male-dominated. That's just the fact. Um, the people who end up making the games are also, you know, there's a good, um, there's a good uh, chunk of them who actually go on, who have actually gone on to start up the games-focused funds and those VCs or become like the partners at, you know, already established funds like the A16Zs and whatnot. But I mean, just talking about like females and specifically, like they have now started to enter the industry in the workforce at at an increased rate. And we'll start to, basically we'll start to see that like percolate across like different aspects of the, you know, gaming gaming value chain over time. Um, And that's why I kind of say that, yeah, we're probably at like the start of the snowball. So, and everything that you said, Maria, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And um, and yeah, what Aaron also was saying about, you know, all these different parts of the companies need like that. Di- mm-hmm. how, how did you say it? Diverse, um, diverse people with diverse mindsets. Is, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think even if it doesn't yeah. happen because it should happen, it's a good thing. Uh, I think it will happen because the market will require it. If you have yeah, a diverse and, audience, you need a team that understands diverse thought. Yeah, yeah. if there are more diverse founders, right, like, those are the people who turn into diverse investors in the future. Um, so yeah. a little and, bit. And there. you're also right, like, you know, the the more that uh, the rest of the market starts to see these, like, like the way you did, you went on to like these VC websites and checked out their team. Probably a lot of those were like male dominated teams, uh, you know, uh, but you start to see like more females over there. It inspires the next, you know, generation of investors specifically. Um, yeah, to, we, you talk, know, yeah. we talk about gender, but like all, all pillars really of, of diversity, color. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's just yeah, so definitely. much to improve overall. Yeah. But we'll see it. The market will drive us to it, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic for sure. Uh, so. Yeah, me too. Can I, can, I yeah, say, can I add one more quick topic, Maria, before we close up? I'll make it really fast. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. So I just wanted, but so I had a third topic prepared for today that my the first two were kind of negative. <laughs> like they were basically just like, <laughs> hey, a lot has changed in the first half of the year. And it's basically things from being up to going down, which isn't, it's not fun to see. It's not fun to live through. 
Um, and I still think the rest of the year, like there still are going to be some challenges here and there, but there is like one area of strength that I, I did want to highlight. Um, Eric Kress in my interview with him, he kind of pointed it out. Um, and, and the, I think the last round table, I think the opposite was said, and I kind of like disagreed with maybe how it was portrayed, but I think, you know, bottom line, I think, you know, console is going to be like a really bright spot for the industry in the next, the rest of the year. Simply just because, you know, other parts of the industry, they still have issues that they're sorting through. We went, we talked about crypto issues. Everybody knows like mobile with user acquisition. There are just some structural issues that have an impact on economics at play, et cetera. And stock market down affects, you know, companies like Unity, Roblox, et cetera. Um, but console, we're still so early in the console, like the new console cycle. There's still so much pent up demand. <laughs> um and from supply chain issues, just like and just demand being in general, that I think like if you're looking for a bright spot in the industry that's going to continue to excel, no matter what we really see in the economy or whatever structural issues appear, like this is it. Like even in PC, it's not going to be as strong because you know PC sales been having issues. If you look at GPUs, inventories are starting to stockpile, prices are starting to to get slashed, um, but console demand is still way 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 higher than supply and all of these companies i mean um i mean sony first and foremost nintendo too xbox is a little weirder with game pass but you know the the new games that they're going to be publishing over the next six 12 months they're going to be super well received <laughs> on larger install bases in like platform bases than ever before so anyways we talked a lot about a lot of negative stuff today but this is one bright spot that i'm like pretty excited about both as a consumer and, you know, just as a business person to see, to continue to grow and perform really well. Even if, you know, recession area environments get worse, console, console is going to hold up all right. But yeah, just, just to clarify, but you mean both like the hardware and the, and the content side of it, both, both of them are going to be like uh, the bright spot for console? Hardware, absolutely, for sure. Software, I think... Mm -hmm. um, I think at, I think the answer is yes. There are going to be some spots where like it always just depends what games come out that kind of like determines like some lumpiness there. And we haven't really seen <laughs> um, economic like recessions hit when um, like software as a service or just like more like digital transactions are as prominent. And so we'll see. But <laughs> even if you look at like changes PlayStation has made recently with like its new tiered approach to subscriptions and things like that. Like that's another tailwind of like improving LTV on an enormous user base that it's going to have on its back, even if things get worse. So yeah, from a, from a hardware side, I feel good from like, just like a base level services standpoint, I feel pretty good and games. I haven't thought too much of just about like the full pipeline, how that adds up to sales, but the, the main games that do come out, um, they're going to be very, very well received, I think. Um, so mm. I'm, yeah, I feel, feel pretty good all the way around on that. Nice. I still need to get, get myself, uh, an Xbox and the Xbox game pass. So that'll be like one customer contribution from my side to Aaron's <laughs> prediction. <laughs> nice. Uh, I might start playing more console with the subscription of PlayStation. I don't know. I'm still mm. into my mobile. We'll see. Yeah. But what do you, uh, maybe this is the last question to wrap it up, but what, what, what are you guys playing right now? <laughs> I'm still on Off-Road Unchained, fighting oh, man, those leaderboards. It's so good. I don't know. I can't stop playing it. Um, 
And Diablo Immortal, still, still getting through yeah. that. How about yeah. you, Aaron? Yeah, on, on mobile, Diablo Immortal and Apex Mobile, first and foremost. Mainly, but the mobile games to play is mainly determined by what we're deconstructing in Novik Pro next, and those are the next two. And so um, <laughs> that's where I've been spending some time. But on console, I'm a little There's late. A focus. Yeah. On console, I'm a little late, but I'm finally digging into Elden Ring. Um and screaming at my TV Whoa. a lot, yeah. But oh my god, <laughs> yeah. But it's a great game. I I love it. I, yeah. I wasn't a huge like like Souls fan, so I didn't think I would like it as much as I did. But um, uh-huh. I like it quite a bit. It's nice. Mm, nice. How I'm uh, I'm yeah. I'm like still super heavy into Apex Mobile, so I just hit like level forty four and in the Platinum Three League or something like that. And oh wow. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I Every time I get like 20 minutes uh, of a break, I'm basically just like playing a game. I got like, I made some new friends, you know, they're, uh, they're part of my squad. I'm actually going to uh, send out a link on the Navic Slack today to kind of join the Navic uh, guild. <laughs> in it, so then we can all play together. Nice. Uh, and the other game that I just discovered um, is this game called uh, Stumble Guys. Um, I was actually looking at um, one of the topics that we didn't actually have time to talk about was, you know, just like the drop in mobile game spending and the whole IDFA thing. And I was just looking at some of the data to see, okay, where is that drop coming from? And I noticed that hyper casual is actually up 20, like 24% in its uh, IAP spending year on year uh, in Q2 of wow. this year. And then I looked into, okay, like what games actually contributing to that? And this one game came up called Stumble Guys. And I was like, that sounds like eerily similar to Fall Guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then uh, and then I downloaded it just like you know about an hour before this recording, and it's basically Fall Guys. But man, it is fun on mobile. <laughs> like oh, I'm really, gonna play really it. Fun. Yeah, it's it's really good. So we definitely recommend checking it out. I think it's already in like the top fifty downloads and whatnot. But um, but yeah, pretty sure uh, Devolver is uh, keeping a close eye on them. <laughs> The Devolver, it's uh, a Mediatonic. Um, Mediatonic, yeah, sorry, yeah, not Devolver. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, you wanted to end with some love. I'll, I'll end with some love cheesiness, Aaron. Um, looking back to the first half of 2022, there's a lot less difficult in the world right now. Yeah, there's some difficult things that we need to we need to cope with, and so games are super important. And so everyone that's listening that develops games, we, we deeply appreciate you and you should appreciate yourself because you're helping us find just a little break. These 20 minutes that Manu spoke about to relax mm. and stop thinking about everything that's going on. So yeah, hang in there, keep developing good games and we'll do another episode like this towards Christmas to look back at the second half. Mm-hmm. I hope you like the fireworks. <laughs> we'll we'll ask Gavin to like put some uh, sound effects next. Uh, yeah. <laughs> shoo, shoo. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh man, uh, okay. Thanks for joining, Aaron. Manu. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Discord. Sign up to the free newsletter of Navic Digest, and we'll see you next week. 